Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 128. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, thanks, Chuck. And hey, everybody, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 128 you're listening to. Boy, we're really climbing up here, 128. Someday we'll be at 150, and then soon we'll be at 200. Man. My guest today is Frank Papalardo, who's a mix engineer in the Chicago area, who works primarily at the PBS soundstage. And let me tell you, from a credit perspective, you may not have heard of Frank, but Man, he has worked with, the list is immense, really immense. And you've heard of many of them. Uh, bon Jovi, Dave Matthews Band, Fall Out Boy, Tom Petty, Kenny Chesney, Jewel, Seal, Rob Thomas, Death Cab for Cutie. Uh, I could go on. I'm going to encourage you to just go to Frank's website and check him out at frankpapalardo.com. That's Frank, P-A-P-P-A-L-A-R-D-O.com and check out his credit list. Yeah, so Frank is working for the PBS Soundstage. He also diversifies a bit, as Frank will tell you in our interview coming up. If it's audio, he does it. He really digs in, and whether it's location sound, mixing, editing music for his daughter's dance troupe when she was in school. Of course, now his kids are in college, and well past that. Frank is a true working-class audio individual, and I'm uh, really happy to have him on the show. We spoke via FaceTime from uh, his studio uh, in the Chicago area. So uh, yeah, Frank Papalardo coming up. So as I mentioned in the last show in episode 127 with Craig Schumacher, I am going to mix with the masters and this is mix with the masters featuring Chad Blake. And if you listen to the show or have listened to the show for any length of time, I'm sure you've heard me mention that Chad Blake is uh, one of my favorites, uh, somebody that greatly inspires me from an engineering perspective. So I'll be going to spend a week in September uh, at Studio La Fabrique in the south of France. So I'm going to just kind of report to you my experience with it as as we go and uh, give you the full debriefing when I return. As I mentioned, you you apply and you provide a lot of background information so they can, um, you know, I guess the, the term that many people use these days is they vet you, they check you out, they see if you're for real, they see if, you know, you're just, I don't know, some knucklehead who is a big fan of some band who's worked with these engineers. So they can kind of weed people out, make sure they don't get anybody that I guess shouldn't be there. They're looking for people who are uh, experienced, uh, who have a good background in music or recording who they think would be a good fit. And I fortunately was uh, accepted based on the information I provided. And uh, they seem to think that uh, I would be a good fit for the, for the group. So uh, like I said, that's in September. And I guess what's going to happen is, is I'm going to fly to Charles de Gaulle airport in uh, Paris. That's San Francisco straight to, to Paris. That's a pretty lengthy flight. And then I'm going to take a train to a small town in the south of France, and then they'll pick me up. So the plan is, is that I'll fly out. Uh, I'm going to try to fly a couple days early so I can kind of, I don't know what the term would be. Uh, I'm going to just say de-jet lag myself, remove the jet lag. 
that's the plan, then I guess when I show up, I'll be fresh and, and not be jet lagged and take in everything he has to say and uh, really absorb it. So looking forward to it. And I will continue to uh, report along the way. So there it is. Yeah. Mix with the Masters coming up for me in September. And also, uh, once again, Summer Nam. Let's talk about that. Nashville this year. Uh, that is in July. So I'll be there at uh, Summer Nam. And I'll, in fact, I'm going to be staying with my brother from another podcast, Lidge Shaw. Lidge uh, from Recording Studio Rockstars is uh, letting me crash at his house, which is going to be cool. We're going to be there with uh, hanging out with a bunch of other audio bloggers and podcasters and YouTubers that uh, Lidge has invited. So I'm really looking forward to meeting some of these folks. And uh, yeah. So anyways, if you're there, if you're in the Nashville area, please, uh, if you see me at NAMM, please don't hesitate to come on over and say hello and introduce yourself. And uh, we can drink coffee and talk shop. You know, I love that. So we can we can do that. Coffee, of course, is the key component in that equation. Before we get to our next guest, I do want to mention two things. Number one, I've mentioned it before. We are sponsoring the forum on gear sluts known as Audio Life. Please pay a visit to that and check it out. It's a lot of the topics we talk about here on Working Class Audio, and it's just on Gear Sluts in a subforum called Audio Life. So there's that. Also, I want to make sure that you do know that uh, our friends at Universal Audio, whose products I'm a big fan of and I use every single day, I want to make sure that you do know they're having an Apollo interface promotion where until June 30th, if you buy an Apollo, they're going to give you some plugins for free, which is a really nice deal to complement the Apollo interface you get, which already comes with some plugins, but they're going to give you some more. And depending on the uh, setup of the Apollo interfaces that you get, you can get more free plugins. So make sure you head on over to uaudio.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and check that out. And um, if you're thinking about buying an interface or you just bought one and you didn't realize this promotion was in effect, you need to get over there and check that out and, and they'll sort you out. Really cool deal. So... Well, that's it. Let's uh, let's get on with it. Let's talk to Frank Papalardo. Really like this guy. Total working class guy doing a lot of great work for PBS Soundstage. So next time you watch PBS Soundstage, you'll know to hang around in the credits and look for Frank's name. So there it is. So uh, let's get into it. Frank Papalardo here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast and thanks for doing this, Frank. I'm going to just start with right now rather than going too far in the past just yet. But right now you mix shows for PBS for the show Soundstage. Is that right? That is correct. And you have worked with pretty much, I don't want to say everybody, but quite a lot of people. Yeah, quite a lot of big names. Uh, a lot of people have done our show. I've been very fortunate to uh, be able to work with the caliber of artists that uh, I have. And just everyday household names in music, for sure. How did you get into that gig? It goes back to uh, a studio I worked at uh, back in the days when there were commercial studios. Uh, I was part of a studio called River North that was in downtown Chicago. And I was uh, started as the uh, daytime assistant and the nighttime engineer and eventually became just one of the house engineers. And we did music, we did jingles, we did everything. And the person that ran that studio, uh, Joe Thomas, eventually struck up a partnership with some guys that wanted to bring Soundstage back. It had been on the air in the 70s was actually the first show that was ever broadcast in stereo. 
And we had the idea we we're going to bring Soundstage back in high def. At that time, there weren't other shows in high def. So we we're always trying to stay on the edge of technology. So from the get-go, were you kind of in that position of being the main engineer? Yes, right from the start, from our first show. And I think we're in about our 13th season now. So the protocols and, and the logistics of the show, I would assume that you're the one who designed the workflow. Yes, for the recording, we, we've gone through a couple different eras of recording. When we first started, we hired someone with a truck. So we had a recording truck and we did it. And then eventually we bought our own truck and outfitted our own TV truck. We had a, you know, 43 foot TV truck that had both video and audio in it. And then from there we went to fly packs and right now we're in a fly pack system. And so we can go anywhere and, and, or at WTTW studios, which are in Chicago. Okay. Now I, I got to express my, my ignorance. I do not know what a fly pack system is. Could you tell us what that is? It just means that I've got a Pro Tools rig and it's in cases that can fly, you know, basically oh. that's why it's basically just all in cases and you can set it up anywhere. You know, they can throw me on the side of the stage. They could put me in a room by myself. I can be anywhere, you know, 150 feet away from the stage and, uh, you know, still make a multi-track recording of the concert. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure that in the time that you've been doing it, you've seen the technology change to such a degree. Does it just keep getting smaller and smaller? Smaller and cheaper. To uh, have a system like I have now would have been, you know, anywhere from sixty to $80,000 with all the mic pre's and like, you'd have a big giant console. When I first started, uh, you know, I had a 94 channels of console and things have just gotten smaller, smaller. And uh, now I'm using a virtual console. I have two Dell touchscreens. I'm using the Waves LV1. I've got Digico uh, mic pre's. And uh, the, between me and my setup is one Cat6 cable. Oh, love that. <laughs> <laughs> Before, it used to be a lot of copper. <laughs> a lot of copper and a lot of hassle and a lot of setup. Yeah. So with, you know, with the way cabling is now and networking and everything, it's amazing what you can do. In terms of the challenges from the beginning of your adventure with Soundstage up to now, have the challenges changed with the technology as well? Or have they, have they been reduced or increased? Or I'll be honest, for me, it seems like it's a lot easier. And I'm not sure if that's just because I'm better and I've been doing it a long time or the equipment is all that much easier to use. It seemed like it was way more complicated when we started, you know, dealing with fiber optic cables and trying to get control to the mic pre's and uh, monitoring. And it just seemed like it was a, a big deal. And, and now, you know, give me an hour and I can set up anywhere and record a concert, 60 channels. Um, you know, I, I've, I've got my rig and I've got my audience mics, and which is a big part of recording live concerts. It's It's really... I think the most challenging part of it and the part that I feel like I really do well is uh, no concert sounds great if you don't capture the audience and it doesn't sound like it's happening. And, and so we're very careful about the microphones and that we have enough of them out there to uh, capture that audience. The recordings that you make, uh, are you making a live to two-track mix as you're going or are you remixing in post-production? Uh, really, the answer is both. I'm making a, the best possible two-track mix I can, and I find the harder I try to make that mix great, the better my recording will be. 
And who's hearing that mix is the director and the cameraman and anybody else that wants to be in on it. Now, that doesn't get broadcast to the consumer. Then I go back to a post uh, house and uh, take the time and really mix it right and uh, interact with the video editor. You know, I'll give him a mix. He'll, He'll edit video. He'll give me the edited video that always changes the mix when I can see it. It's really hard to mix for video if you're not looking at it. So uh, it's sort of a back and forth process. Interesting. And as far as a, a crew underneath you, is, do you have a crew that you rely on? You know, that's gotten smaller too. When, when I first started, I had two assistants and I used to go out there with three guys and a lot of help. And I've done stuff all by myself and uh, maybe just with a little bit of help, you know, like having the front of house guy uh, give me a, a few lines back to the stage, um, you know, basically... You know, I, I know your show's not super into the technical, but I'll go really yeah, kind tell of us a bit. basic and quick how it goes. You know, you got all your microphones on stage. They go to a four-way split. From that four-way split, one split, of course, goes to front of house engineer. The second split goes to the monitor engineer. The third split would go to me. And the fourth, if there is one, there not always is one, would go to the redundant record. You know, when you're dealing with a shoot that might cost $350,000, I can't tell them, oops, uh, I didn't get that. So uh, you have to make sure everything's rock solid and you have to have a backup. What do you use as your backup? Uh, I just go to a laptop. Over the years, it's been different. Sometimes, you know, back in the old days was Tascam DA88s and things like that. And then it went to uh, to Tascam, uh, 32 channel recorders. And now it's just, uh, again, it's just a cat six to a laptop. Oh, and really? Uh, Interesting. So does that, yeah. that cat six to a laptop, is that, uh, through a Dante type protocol? It's like that. It's, it's Wave's own protocol, which is very much like Dante, but it's their dedicated one. And that, and that's how the audio gets around. Interesting. Okay. And there are mic pre's. How does that work? It's an amazing thing. What goes up and down that Cat6 cable. I mean, you've got me controlling the mic pre's, putting high-pass filters on them if I want, of course, changing the gain, and also you got 64 channels of audio going going through those that Cat6 cable. I know it sounds mind-boggling, and even though I do it all the time, it's still mind-boggling to me that all that can go through that cable, but it does, and it works great. That's okay. My my father, who's in his late 80s, is still truly amazed at the technology of television. So (laughs) (laughs) he always tells me, you know, I just can't believe I'm sitting here staring at this television picture and they're broadcasting from, you know. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, Dad, that's that's TV. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I bet but he still I, thinks the lunar landing was a hoax, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, he, he he worked for worked for the government in in uh, the area of defense. So no, he's, oh wow, he's, he's, he he's knows. Little, he never thought that, but but I I share in your amazement at what we can cram down Cat Six cable these days and what's yep. what's possible and. Yeah, well, it's all because it's digital and basically it's just zeros and ones at different frequencies. And and when you start thinking about it that way, it seems a little less uh, Star Trek. But uh, yeah, and you know, and I kind of under underdid it there. It's you know, it's sixty four channels of audio plus I could I, I also could have uh, oh geez probably twenty four channels of of return. Like if I wanted to do monitors, wow both ways. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. I, I would assume you're not doing this gig all the time. This is, would you categorize this as a part-time gig? No, Just this to- is every time. 
This is every day. Oh, it's every day. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I show up to, to a post house every day. If I'm not on the road doing a concert or uh, at WTTW doing a concert, last night we recorded uh, Michael McDonald. Um, next Tuesday I'm recording uh, Take Six and Manhattan Transfer. So, you know, it just keeps going. And when I'm not doing that, I'm mixing, I'm posting, you know, back at the, the thing. So it keeps me busy. Is that a union-based gig? Depending on where you're at. I am in the union, just so I don't have to have a shadow. You know, it all depends on where, where you're at. It all depends on the house. Well, let's talk the, the practical, no fun stuff to talk about. Are you making a, a decent living from that gig? I am. I make a decent living from that gig, but that doesn't mean I don't try and supplement my my income in other ways. I look at myself as being an everything audio guy. Like I can record a concert with 94 channels, but I can also stand there with a pole in my hand and lava up some people and, 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 you know, go to a camera and do that kind of audio. I do live sound, you know, I've, I've six bands locally. I do live sound for, so I'm always doing live sound on Fridays and Saturdays. If uh, somebody comes in the soundstage and they don't have a front of house engineer, then I will do it. So I kind of try and do everything. You know, I run into a lot of engineers who are like, oh, I'm a studio guy or oh, I'm, I don't like the studio. I'm a live guy. Well, I'm kind of the everything guy. I love doing live sound because the immediacy of it and it, it, it's fun. But uh, my main thing is studio. Interesting. Yeah, I see that you, you on your website, you promote uh, mixing as a as kind right. of a primary feature of what you do. For obvious reasons, I mean, you you mix right. a hell of a lot of stuff, right? That's what I'm known for is is mixing and you know very fast and quick turnaround. And what's your advice for audio folks and how they deal with money and gigs and what gigs to take and what gigs not to take? How how have you approached it? What works for you? My approach was to gravitate towards the people in town that were doing the most amount of work and making the most amount of music. And there's always those people. And you have to figure out a way to try and get in with those people. You know, I live in Chicago. So, you know, early on, I found a way into, you know, working with Survivor. And then I've, I mixed the Return to Paradise Theater DVD for Sticks. So, you know, you, you see who, in, who lives in your town that's really doing it, really making music. And you try and get yourself in with those people. And then, too, you, you look for people that uh, can get things done. Um, like I said, the guy primarily uh, do work for Joe Thomas. Uh, he's a great businessman, and he uh, is able to go out there and, and get us work and uh, get us concerts and, you know, other things. Like I did the, the uh, all the Brian Wilson solo records, uh, back to his first one called Imagination, right down to the last one he did, which was called No Peer Pressure. So, you know, if you're not a, a, a big business guy, you need to, to hook up with some real business guys so you could stay busy. And most engineers I met, me included, are not great businessmen or self-promoters. You know, it's, it's, if there's anything I've been lax in throughout my career is promoting myself, you know, mm-hmm. because I'm always busy. So I don't feel like I really, you know, it's not like I'm looking for the next gig all the time. But I also feel like if I would have spent a little more time just sort of getting my name out there, it, it certainly wouldn't have hurt my career any. So you've really relied on word of mouth and some business connections to bring in the, the continual gig. Right, right, right. And, and and it's about attitude. You know, I really think, you know, if, if I had to say something to some a, a young guy that's coming up, first of all, be flexible. Don't think that you're going to get the gig to mix somebody's record, you know, right out of... Uh, 
one of the many, many schools that are churning out many, many audio engineers, you know, be patient. You'll, you'll find a job, but also be flexible. If you can get a job at a theater, great. If you can get a job, uh, doing post work, great, uh, uh, TV work, film work, whatever, get your foot in the door and start working. And once you establish yourself, maybe you can move more into the direction that you really want to move into, but you can't be super picky. And uh, if there's anything I, I think has been part of my success is just my attitude. I'm, I'm a very positive person. I'm very easy to be in a room with. You know, I like to have fun. I like to make jokes. I like to keep things light. And if someone's going to spend a lot of time with you, you can't be a guy that's uh, no fun to be around. Let's talk a little bit about the past. Where did you actually jump in and say, ooh, audio, that's my thing? And, and it is funny because it was a little accidental. And I don't think my st I've, story is that different than a lot of folks. But four years old, I saw a band playing in a shopping mall. And I went to my parents and I said, mom, dad, I want to play the drums. And so they handed me a guitar and said, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> the Wait drums are too loud. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Wait a minute. <laughs> so I started playing guitar when I was six. I had my first band when I was 13. I played all through college all the time. Uh, I went away to college and then was playing so much that I came back home and lived at home my junior and senior year because I was in a pretty popular band that, that really played like three, four times a week. And so, you know, when I started, I was going to be a rock star, you know, I, I was going to be, uh, you know, Brian Adams or Billy Squire. And then at some point at 23, two things happened. First of all, I realized I was playing Brian Adams songs and Brian Adams was the same age as me. So I was like, geez, you know, I really have to concentrate on the songwriting. So I went to a, a studio where I had made a record and I was always a little intrigued. And I would say my first thing into audio was when I was 12, I bought a, a TAC3340. So I had a four track recorder where I used to lay down chords and then play guitar solos over them. So that was really my first recording. And so, that, so anyway, so I went to the studio, I said, Hey, I really want to learn this. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to scam some free recording time to record my songs. So they said, okay, you sound serious. So I went to this uh, little suburban studio in a garage uh, called Tanglewood in Brookfield, Illinois, and uh, worked for four months for free as an assistant. And then I started getting paid the giant sum of $2 an hour to be an assistant. And uh, and then I started asking myself the question that everyone says is, can you really make money doing this? And so I talked to a studio musician. I said, man, how do I make money doing this? I, you know, I want to move out of my house uh, before I'm 30. And he's just like, you got to go downtown. You got to do jingles. You know, that's what you got to do. And so I, I, luckily I was able to do that. I went downtown. I started doing jingles. It helped my engineering became very, very fast and, you know, went from $2 an hour to $50 an hour pretty quickly. And so now, you know, I'm feeling good. I'm making some money in the audio uh, industry. And the other thing was, <laughs> I'll never forget the moment I heard eruption. I was at a pool party. There was a boombox on the floor. An eruption came on, and it just stopped me in my tracks. And I thought to myself, not only can I not do that, I don't even know how he's doing that. Maybe I should not be a guitar player. <laughs> I think a lot of guitar players felt that way when they heard eruption for the first time. I'm like, maybe I should do something different. So anyways, after a year of, of, of uh, studio work, I realized that I could be a, a a very good engineer as opposed to a mediocre guitar player and singer. So I made the switch and uh, I was lucky I did. Who um, 
were your mentors or mentor? Here's the thing. I had a good mentor in that uh, there was a guy named Larry Millis, and he was a member of the Ides of March uh, that did the song Vehicle. So he sort of taught me the basics. And then from there, it becomes difficult when you live in Chicago. You know, you look at some of these big engineers and they have this this lineage of, you know, Mike Klink was a assistant for Ron Nevison, who did Led Zeppelin records, who he assisted, uh, I can't think of his last name, but his first name is Jack. And so they have this whole thing of these guys got to assist really great engineers and learn. And in Chicago, it's not really like that. I sort of learned everything on my own. And every now and then I would, I would talk to somebody and, and find out that I was either on the right track or not on the right track. But uh, I'm going to tell a little quick short story, and I think this is kind of fun. Always sort of my, an engineer I looked up to and loved his work was Bob Claremountain. Mm. And I just love the sound of the Brian Adams Cuts Like a Knife album. And, and so, you know, I would listen to him and, 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 and just really love his work. Well, as time went on, you know, years, 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 years went by. Uh, the last solo Brian Wilson record I, I did, I had mixed it. And, you know, sometimes with record companies, they, they make decisions just because they're record companies. And so they, one day they came in and said, Hey, you know, this is going to bum you out, but they want Bob Clearmountain to mix the, the record. And I'm like, at first I'm like, I'm really bummed out. Right. But then I start thinking about it. Wait a second. So. I have all these mixes that I've done, and now Bob Claremontin's going to do the same damn thing, and I can compare with what he's done. So it was a great experience. I got to talk to him on the phone. I had to prepare the tracks for him. You know, he still mixes on an SSL, so he can only, you know, we had a beach, we have uh, Brian Wilson's uh, tracks sometimes are in Beach Boys. Uh, well, Brian Wilson tracks are over 100 tracks of Pro Tools because he does all the vocals himself, and there's lots of mulch. So, you know, there was a lot of sub mixing to be done. So, you know, I kind of turned, uh, you know, lemons into lemonade. And at first I was bummed, but then I was, I embraced it. And it was really fun to hear the differences, but also hear that there wasn't all that much difference. It wasn't like a night and day kind of thing, like, holy cow. In a lot of ways, they were very similar and sometimes songs you couldn't tell it apart. So, it was it was good for me and uh, a, a real great experience and sort of full circle. Wow, um, I love that you you can you know find the the silver lining there and and turn it into uh, you know turn lemons into lemonade as we say and learn from it. The Chicago we'll say the Chicago recording scene or the Chicago mm-hmm. the the world of audio as it as it relates to Chicago. How do you think it differs in your in your view or your experience to New York or Los Angeles or Nashville? Well, yeah, well, I've worked in all four places. You know, I've worked at Right Check in New York. I've worked at most of the studios in Nashville, and I've worked at studios in LA. And there's a you know there's a different vibe. You know, Chicago back in the day, fifties and sixties, this was a real recording mecca. You know, we had Chess Studios. We had a lot of great studios. It was Universal. There's still CRC. That's the only one that's left. There was a place called Streeterville. There were there was all these studios and all this really great R and B work, as well as sort of uh, the '60s during the British invasion. There were other bands uh, like the Buckinghams and the Ides of March and 
Crying Shames and New Colony Six and uh, all these bands are out of Chicago and they were all having hit records. So there really was a, a recording scene. And then, you know, like everywhere else, as time went on, everybody, you know, got a Pro Tool rig in their bedroom or their office. And uh, the time of the big commercial studio just sort of dwindled and, you know, there's not many left now. And, you know, I lament that. I, I still love a big time studio. I, I've been lucky enough to work at Ocean Way a number of times. And, you know, when you're in Ocean Way A and, you, you, you know, you're thinking to yourself, wow, they made, you know, the Michael Jackson bad album here. And you look on the wall and you see pictures of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. You know, there's a history and there's something about being in a place like that as opposed to, you know, hole up in some little room staring at a screen you know, uh, running your DAW. Um, so I feel very lucky in a, that I got to be around when there were tape machines and when there were Neve consoles and Fairchild compressors. And, you know, now I'm, I'm in the box, everything's a plug-in and, and that's how it is. And that's how it has to be. But I s- am so happy that I was able to experience that first go round uh, of audio back in uh, the the 80s. My wife's from the Midwest and from from uh, Michigan. So I've I've spent a considerable amount of time there. I've spent some time in Chicago, a little bit of time in Ohio. I'm curious if you have an opinion about the work ethic. Oh, it's totally different. We hear it all the time, man. We, we can't stand it. We go, we go to LA and people are rolling in at 11 o'clock. And the first thing we do is order lunch. And it's just like, it drives us nuts. <laughs> there, and I've heard this so many times that there is a work ethic from people from the Midwest. I mean, we want to show up, we want to work, we want to get it done. We want to get it done right. And it drives me nuts sometimes when I go to other places where it's just kind of this, uh, yeah, man, we'll get it done. Everything's cool. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm a morning person too. It's like, I'm up at six o'clock. I want to, I want to start working at nine. And I, you know, uh, if I got to work till 10, I, I'll work till 10. Uh, you know, I, I try and get done by, by five or six, but, uh, the whole thing of getting started at two or three in the afternoon is, is, is tough on me. You know, I realize there's some musicians, they, they don't get out of bed and, until noontime. So you're not going to be starting at nine o'clock. But th- the thing you're alluding to, the work ethic, is completely true and is noticed everywhere. I'm not trying to disparage the coast by, you know, New York or Los Angeles, but uh, my experience with people from the Midwest is they do have a strong work ethic. And they work hard, and I'm not saying that the coasts don't, but it's just it's a different style. And and mm-hmm. so you've so you've just confirmed my beliefs and and my experience. There's not very much ego or bullshit that comes with people from the Midwest. It's just they're good, hardworking people that just get it done. And really, once again, I speak of my wife as one of my prime examples. I mean, she was up at five thirty this morning and out the door to work. Mm-hmm. but Midwesters work hard and then they come home and then they want to do the family thing. Yeah, um, that's very true. Frank Papalardo here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take time out to thank one of our sponsors. That would be Audio Technica for their support and help that they give us here on, on Working Class Audio. And if you haven't been over to Audio Technica's website, it is audio-technica.com where, of course, you can not only peruse all of the products that they do sell, but you can actually buy them, which is really cool. So if you are in need of a pair of headphones or a microphone, 
and you want to do a quick purchase and you don't want to go through a lot of hassle, just head on over there and you can dump it in your cart, hit go and be on your way and get your uh, headphones and or microphones and or turntables uh, sent to you rather quickly. So there it is, audio-technica.com. So there it is, audio-technica.com. Well, let's get back into it. Frank Pompolardo here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I'm curious how your work-life balance works for you. You have kids. We talked the other day. You have kids in college. Yes, I have kids in college, but let's go back to before they're in college. I have a son that was a baseball pitcher in high school. I think I missed one game out of his four years of high school. You know, you, you can do it. You can make it work. That's really important stuff. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm so glad uh, my daughters were in dance. You know, my God, I've seen so many dance recitals and dance competitions. And of course, I was the guy that had to edit the music. <laughs> so <laughs> they would come to me, hey, Mr. Papillardo, can you make us a really great, you know, dance mix of this this song? You know, it's got to be a minute 50. I'm like, okay, I got it. So uh, I, I, I've done a lot of editing of of music for for that purpose, whether it be dance or, or for cheerleading or whatever. So I'm sort of telling you how I've worked my kids into what I do. And, and it's a funny thing that my kids make jokes about it all the time. None of them are in music and they think it's funny. They're like, isn't it funny, dad, how you know everything about music and, and we're not interested? I'm like, oh yeah, that's hilarious. But uh, they're, <laughs> they're very artistic. You know, my, my daughter just graduated uh, from uh, Miami of Ohio with a degree in uh, interior design and my son's uh, graduating with a degree in finance and uh, they like music. They have good musical tastes and, you know, it's fun to talk music with them. It keeps me up on what's new. Um, so I don't become kind of stale and stagnant. Uh, there's, there's more out there than classic rock. And so, uh, you know, they, <laughs> <laughs> they keep, they keep me up on things, but uh, I've always made time for my family and uh, they've always come first and it, there have been times where, um, unfortunately, uh, I had to work. Well, you know, Wednesday was a perfect example. You know, Wednesday was my 25th wedding anniversary and I didn't see my wife that day, you know, but, you know, three weeks earlier, we went to Sedona for a week and, and had a nice little vacation. So it, you have to realize that these things are super important. And just because I didn't get to celebrate on the actual day, doesn't mean I didn't try and make some type of a celebration. That's a really good point. If you know you're going to miss the day, make the point of celebrating on a different day with the same gusto and intention. Right. Family dynamic, if it's if it's going strong, it really makes the work a lot easier because you don't have to stress too much about what's happening at home because you know you got it down. I realize not every day is a fantastic day, but if the general atmosphere at home is positive and everybody's at least on the same page, that always helps take that off your mind when you're trying to focus on work. But I'm still just, I, my kids aren't any different, you know, that I'm still the guy that they roll their eyes on when I make a corny joke. And, you know, my wife, I got married at, you know, 31, so she wasn't around for my band days and stuff. So that's like a whole nother lifetime. You know, she's only known me as an engineer, but, uh, a funny story, she uh, works at a retail place and somebody came in and they looked at her name tag and said, uh, Papillardo. And, and, and they said, do you know Frank Papillardo? And she's like, well, yeah, I'm married to him. And I swear I'm not making this up. And the guy said, the Frank Papillardo? 
<laughs> and so for a week, they all called me the Frank Papalardo. They just thought that was the funniest thing in the world, you know. <laughs> to this guy who was in a band, probably I was a big deal. But to, at home, I'm just still this, you know, dad with the stupid jokes. <laughs> <laughs> it puts it all into perspective. It does. <laughs> now, we, we briefly spoke on the phone the other day, and you kind of touched on retirement. And, and you said, you know, really, you're just going to work until you're 75. Because really, as you mentioned, your kids are everything to you. I really admire you for that. For that. And you've put a lot of your money into them for their college education. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and giving them opportunities, uh, you know, whether, you know, I've always tried to give them uh, cultural opportunities. You know, we, we, we go to a lot of, we've went to plays when they were young. We go see things. Uh, I built a home theater in our, our house. You know, they're very into movies. Uh, my daughter has a minor in film studies and, you know, th these kids have seen like every movie there is, uh, you know, have a really nice, <laughs> Uh, surround set up with Gentle X in my house. And, you know, w when they were young, we would watch a movie every night. And so that's uh, another way for me to, you know, connect with them and, 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 and have something to talk about, you know, with them as uh, they get older, because, you know, now, you know, 24, 22, they've got their own thing going on. And, you know, there's, there's not all that much that, uh, reason for me to hang with them anymore, but I could always say, hey, let's go see a movie. Yeah, that's right. Michael Rosen, who's been on the show, Michael Rosen, who's worked with like Tesla and Papa Roach mm -hmm. and some and bands like that, he told me, and I'm going to paraphrase, but he talked about not being the dad who shows up after the meal's over at home, but making a priority to be there to maybe even cook the meal or serve mm -hmm. the meal because of that time spent with your kids. And that really struck a chord in me, I have to say, and hearing you talk about your experiences, I, I, I really admire that. And because as we also talked about on the phone, my kids are younger, eight and 11 at this point. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to make it a point of being present and structuring my audio life around them rather than the opposite. And I realize when you're dealing on a larger scale, like you are, that's not always going to work as you expect it. No, no, it's not. Because uh, you've got big bands and, and lots of responsibilities going on. So it's going to be a little bit different dynamic. It's just how it is. And you just try and, uh, you try and make it work. That's, that's all you can really do. But uh, another thing too, you know, as kids get older, it's about the time you spend with them. And I, I, I always ask, I'll ask people, you know, when you grow up, you're not going to remember one thing you ever got for Christmas, maybe one or two, but for the most part, the stuff you're not going to remember. But when you grow up, you remember every vacation you went on. So if I could change something in my life with my family, I wish I would have went on a vacation every year. So some years we just didn't do it. And I, I say to people, you know, young parents, if they've got young kids, you know, if you don't have the money to go on a vacation, put the kids in the car, drive around for two hours, stop at a, at a, a hotel with a pool two miles from your house and stay there a couple nights and pretend you're on vacation because they will remember that, you know, it's an important thing. I mean, they, they, we did go on some pretty good vacations like to Mexico and things like that. And of course, you know, great memories, but kids don't remember the stuff you bought them. They remember the time you spent with them. Very important lesson there for sure. You have a place that you go to work for mm -hmm. a soundstage, but you also have a studio of your own. Is that correct? Well, no, it's, it's not, 
the soundstage gets recorded downtown Chicago at WTT Studios, but then there's a post house in St. Charles, which is 50 miles straight west of downtown Chicago. That's where I go every day. And, you know, I have a, I have a big console and there's edit suites and, you know, we have what's called a core where all the, you know, the machines go so we don't have to listen to them. You know, my computer is not in the same room with me. It's in another room. Uh, so I don't have to hear the fans and stuff. So, yeah, it's a facility and there's offices and, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's what we do. And, uh, so, uh, but of course, you know, I can work in any, any studio and, and, uh, I do, uh, seminars, mix seminars and stuff. And I try to impress upon people, you know, try and learn, get into how I think, don't get into specific plugins I use, you know, right away, everybody wants to know, you know, what plugins do you put on your two mix? Oh, can I see your vocal chain? And, you know, it's a little bit important, but what's more important is to realize that audio and engineering is a, a thousand little decisions you make that add up into the final product, that there's no silver bullet uh, plug-in that you're just going to put on your mix and everything's going to sound great. You know, it's a lot of little things that add up. And I always try and part that to people when they, you know, take the seminar and, uh, that's that's really what it's about. I sort of have a, a philosophy towards audio and life, and that is to simplify. You know, when I look at audio, to me, and, and this might seem goofy, but it's just how I look at it. Everything is volume. It's like, for me, it's just like up or down. And then people say, oh, what about panning? I'm like, well, it's just more volume in the right speaker than the left speaker. Oh, well, what about EQ? Well, it's just really more volume at a specific frequency. And so I really try and make things simple. And you mentioned the uh, term workflow before. You know, I have certain ways I do things in a certain order that I break them up. I don't, when I start a mix, I don't think to myself, oh my God, I got to mix this hundred tracks. I think to myself, hey, I got to make this kick drum sound good. Okay, I can do that. I've done it before. Let's do that. And then, you know, you move on to the next thing and you just break it all down to little pieces and you try and simplify it. And by not overwhelming your brain with things, you can do a lot more and a lot better work. So I, 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 I try and just keep it simple. And same thing goes for my, life nowadays is harder to keep simple, but I, whenever I can simplify, I try and do it. So I think you're taking that Midwest work ethic and applying it to, to your workflow and audio. It's just <laughs> like, just get it done. Just do it. I have another uh, saying, uh, I got it from, I don't know, some guy, I, I call it, I, I always eat my frogs. And what that means is I always do the hardest thing I have to do in a day first. You know, I always eat my frogs first. And I, I've had people come back to me that I taught this and say, man, you know, that was like the best thing you've ever said to me. It's so true that if you just do the hardest thing you've got to do first, then the rest of the day is easy. You know, the worst thing you can do is have this really difficult task you have to do and then procrastinate all day thinking about how you've got to do this task and wait till, you know, five or six o'clock or God forbid, 10 o'clock at night and start it. You know, I always do the hardest stuff first and uh, it just makes the day go a little easier. That makes a lot of sense. So you also promote yourself, as we said earlier, as a mixer for mm -hmm. outside projects, do you do those projects at this place that you're at now, or do you do that at home? I try not to do it at home. So many times I thought about putting a studio in my house and I was right on the edge of doing it. And then I stopped. It's like, there's something about getting in your car and driving somewhere to go to work. 
and then separating at home. We, me and my wife had a business that had nothing at all to do with audio or music. Uh, and we ran it out of our home for a year and it was a nightmare. Uh, you know, we had stuff all over the place and you're never not at work. And so I'm a big proponent of, you know, get dressed and go somewhere. I'm not a mix it in my pajamas at, you know, two in the morning in my house. It's just, that's just not the way I roll. So I, I have the place out in St. Charles and I have many other studios. I have friends uh, that have studios and I'm, I'm very lucky and a lot of people are always asking me to come to their studio to work and they're willing to give me the studio for free just because for them it's like a learning experience they want a free seminar so they're like hey if you get any projects and you want to record them come to my studio you can use it for free so I, I'm never really out of places to work but I also only do one side project at a time I, I don't like fill my plate too much. Soundstage uh, is my, you know, bread and butter and my job. And that's what I concentrate on. So if I have a local band, like somebody just contacted me the other day, hey, they got this band, uh, you know, we've got four songs. Would you mix them for us? Sure. But I, w- I never do more than one of those at, at a time. So I won't take on anything else until I finish mixing those four songs for that band. The regular listeners of the show uh, know uh, about my fascination with the different ecosystems of different cities and their recording worlds. In your ecosystem, do you stay in touch with and or network with other recording engineers in the Chicago area? No. And I wish I did. I mean, there, there's an organization here called EARS and, 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 you know, it's, I don't know, stands for something, uh, engineering association or recording or something. I don't know. I've been to a few meetings and I wish I could go more and I wish I did have more interaction with other engineers. And uh, when I do, I'm always really happy about it and always sort of benefits both parties. And I love it when I can talk to other engineers from other places, not necessarily Chicago, and just compare notes. And I w- really wish there was more of a community that got together and, you know, talked about things. But um, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of a big fish in a very small pond. You know, I've I've thought about moving to Nashville many times, but, you know, then, you know, there's a recording engineer every 50 paces and, (laughs) and yes, there's a lot of work and yes, everybody's moving there. Now the rock guys are moving there. It's not just about country. And, but it's like, you know, the thought of starting all over again and, 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 uh, you know, developing a reputation and the word of mouth and all that stuff. I I just, I, I, at my age, I just can't start over. This has been great, Frank. Really, you are truly a a working class audio engineer who's in the trenches, just doing a gig. Uh, You have so much experience, but you're not one of the guys that's uh, on the cover of magazines, but yet you have, like I said, years of experience mixing a ton of great acts in a high now, I would assume is a semi high pressure environment. Yeah, very high pressure. I'm really honored to have you on, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Well, thanks very much. Take care. Have a good rest of the weekend, and uh, thanks again. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Frank Papalardo here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have Frank on. And if you can, head on over to frankpapalardo.com and check Frank out, and you'll see all the artists that he's worked with and what he's done. In the meantime, we are out of time. So let's start with all of our thank yous. Let's start with Mr. Cliff Truesdell, Mr. Cole Williams, and Mr. Chuck Smith. I want to thank our sponsors, Focal Monitors, Audio-Technica, Gearsluts.com, Lawton Audio, and Universal Audio. And hey, as usual, I do appreciate the time you've taken to listen to me today. Take care. Take care. 
Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 